At the time of this recording, the world is in the midst of a viral pandemic. Many people are afraid. Many people are in isolation, voluntary or otherwise. Some are sick or will become sick. And indeed, some are dying. In this special series of the Guru Viking podcast, I ask my guests how to work with fear, anxiety and panic. How to work with isolation. How to work with sickness and death and how to help others who are also having those experiences. Neither I nor my guests are medical professionals, and this podcast is not medical advice. Fear, sickness, and death are perennial human experiences, and it's my hope that these episodes will be of use not only to those who are being affected now by this situation, but also of use to others beyond it. Tina, thank you for joining me for this special edition of the Guru Viking podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Steve. Yeah, I was really happy to do it and provide whatever help and support I can. That's great. And listeners of our previous interview, which I'll link in the show notes, will perhaps remember that you spent an entire year in voluntary self-isolation for meditational purposes. (laughs) So I think in a certain sense, you're quite qualified to talk on the situation we're in now. So, first of all, many people are worried, many people are frightened, or experiencing perhaps even panic. What would you say to somebody who came to you and said, Tina, I'm worried, I'm frightened, I'm panicking? Yeah, well, if I was talking with that person live, and and this is also available for people to do on their own, really the first thing I would say is to stop, you know, maybe sit down, take several deep breaths, like maybe three at least. There's a lot of the neuroscience that shows taking three deep belly breaths and the belly breath part of it is important for this, really has a profound effect on our our nervous system. So when people are in a panic, you know, anxiety um, state, there's actually ways we can support ourselves neurologically and physically that get us out of that, fight or flight mode, or that at least support us not, you know, inclining towards that. So that would be the first thing. So um, actually, maybe we'll do that right now. Because I think we could all take three deep breaths. And um, just and, and the other thing is feel yourself sitting here. So let's go ahead and do that. And it's good when you're breathing out to really maybe even make some sound, really let the breath like, ah, you know, like it's really coming out in a way that has some relief to it. Yeah, so that's the first thing, and that can be done as many times a day in any setting, in any situation, whether we're sitting with a loved one or by ourselves or in a store line, or um, it's always available. And then the next thing I would say, and this is really better done when a person has some time to themselves, but even in a, in a tense environment, one can go off and do this if you have a minute or two, is to really feel what's happening in the moment. So if somebody's feeling fear or panic or anxiety, to just stop and realize 
I'm feeling fear. I'm feeling anxiety. I'm feeling panic. And I, I really want to emphasize also that if we're saying this to ourselves, there's an internal self-talk, it's more useful to say, I'm feeling whatever it is. I'm feeling fearful rather than I am fearful. Because saying I'm feeling fearful, you know, this is just self-talk, but um, it gives us a little bit of space from the feeling that instead of being totally identified with it, like saying I am fearful, that's a level closer to being completely identified with the feeling. So this would be the second thing after, you know, giving our nervous system some attention is just, wow, I'm really, I'm really fearful right now. And to just feel that, um, first of all, it brings us into the present moment. You know, a lot of times what, what most people do, what almost all of us do, is we'll start spinning out either mentally or emotionally or physically. You know, the breaths help with the physical a little bit. And there's more I can say about working with our nervous system later. Um, but just having a little space from it makes it where we aren't just spinning out of control, looking at one news story after another, you know, or whatever it is that a person happens to do. It, it, it get, lets us stop for a minute and actually be back in the present moment. This is what's happening. And even to look around and see your environment, um, it can take us out of a cycle that's kind of spinning out. So those would be the first couple of suggestions I would have. Also, at this time, people are falling sick or will fall sick. What would you say to somebody who said to you, Tina, I'm sick, I've been diagnosed with a sickness, what can I do? Yeah, well, that's, I got a little taste of that yesterday when I thought I might have a fever. And I'd been in the Seattle area last week, so, you know, um, I was at the epicenter, basically, and so I had some time where I wasn't sure. I mean, of course, none of us are sure whether we have it or not, but um, I didn't have a fever once I took my temperature. But there was a way where it was like, gosh, I could have this, you know, people have this. And um, so the first two things that I said apply here too. Um, and once we go from a fear to something actually happening, I mean, to me, that's different question. Somebody who suspects they're sick is very different than actually knowing that, for example, somebody has, you know, this condition, the coronavirus in this case. Um, when, when a person is uncertain, that's where the anxiety can spin out of control about the uncertainty. I mean, this is to me really one of the things that is this whole situation is creating is it's giving us a real life um, opportunity. Like in my other work in the business world, we call this an experiential learning opportunity where you go into a situation like, you know, in the old days, they'd have ropes courses and, you know, physical adventure kind of things. And you would see how you actually did 
you know, it was a way to, to do something where you just had to respond from who you were. You couldn't like figure it out on paper, you know, and then you could grow from that. And, and it's one of the most effective kinds of learning, actually. And we are on a mass scale that I don't know that this has ever happened. I mean, there have been um, pandemics, but this is the first time we've known. This is the first time in human history that everyone pretty much has known what was happening. And so the anxiety part of it could be a lot higher, you know, even in 19, whatever it was, the Spanish flu, people didn't know, you know, they might get one little tidbit of information. To me, what this is, one of the things this is offering us is the opportunity to really get that we've never known what was going to happen in our life. We've never known. We thought we could know. You know, and so it's a it's an opportunity for all of us to um, to let go of the idea that we can control what's unfolding in our experience on a you know on a grand scale, and to really um, take prudent action. So to me, this is where I tend to be a very pragmatic person, in addition to being very transcendent in a lot of ways and um, so it's a time to really get used to um, the uncertainty of life and of the unfoldment of our experience and to um, to feel the truth of that so I, I actually brought some poems that I think now might be a good time to read one of them. Is, is what do you think? Yeah. Um, some of these poems are uplifting, and others have a little bit more of a sword. And so this one is um, a little bit more of a sword. And if you don't believe in God, this, you know, use a word that works for you. Even in our sleep, pain, which cannot forget, falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. So um, this is part of what I think is happening. It's like uh, we're having the opportunity to be with the uncertainty and non-attachment. We're all, regardless of whether we are being, you know, self-quarantined or whether we might be sick, whether we are sick, or maybe even facing the end of our lives, we're all needing to really um, get better at non-attachment. So that would be the next, you know, I, I haven't given a specific answer about those cases, which I'm happy to do, but I think for all of us, that's really what we're talking about is, um, can I really get that I don't know what is going to happen in my life? A few years ago, um, 
Stephen and I had authorized one person to teach, and his name was Brian Gavin. And we had just finished our month-long retreat that was full, and um, Brian was there, and he had helped us with some of it, and we had authorized him up to do weekend retreats now. And he was just wonderful person. People loved him. He was 60 years old, very robust, um, extreme sports dude. He did biking, bicycling, and very robust in the prime of his life. And about a month after the re retreat, he was at a bike race. His feet were actually stuck in the bike stirrups, and he just keeled over from a heart attack right on the bike. And, you know, he, and he ended up... Um, his, he was brain dead, but his body was still alive, and we flew up to where he lived, and um, about 10 of us decided, you know, his ex-wife had his power of attorney, and we took him off of the ventilators that were keeping him alive, and we were there um, as he passed, and it was so unexpected and so sudden, and, you know, he didn't wake up that day knowing he was going to die. He thought he was doing a bike race with his girlfriend, you know. Um, so, I mean, to me, this is part of what we can be learning now is the preciousness of what we have and um, to really be feeling into um, that flow of experience that really is both majestic and also uncontrollable in a lot of ways. Who was the author of that poem that you shared there? It, it looks like a Greek author. This is a favorite quotation of Bobby Kennedy. Aeschylus, I'm not sure I'm saying it right, A-E-S-C-H-Y-L-U-S. Do you have anything to say to people who may be experiencing symptoms of illness from a meditational point of view? Yeah. I mean, this is where, like the other night I was laying in bed and as I was, this was before I thought I might have a fever and um, I was laying there and, you know, I, I, I could feel this was coming like a few days before things really tanked. I could feel like the energy in this collective consciousness really just getting extremely agitated. It was like so obvious to me that some major catastrophe was about to happen. Um, so, you know, I, Anyway, I was laying in bed last night and just feeling how much fear there is in, in the collective. And I thought, you know, what if in a few weeks I'm laying in this bed thinking that knowing that I might die, you know, I might be I might die tonight while I'm laying here and not wake up in the morning. Could happen really for everyone on the planet, pretty much. This is a reality that could actually happen that two months ago. It may have still been a reality and we just didn't know it, but now it actually is a reality. So this is where to me, spiritual practice is just such a um, treasure. And it gives us the opportunity to know what we are beyond the body and beyond the personality and even beyond this life to be directly in touch with that which is indestructible and which is um, eternal. And through spiritual practice, we can actually touch that. And, you know, in some traditions, it's thought that the end of life is ex especially 
um, precious because we have let go of so much. You know, it forces a letting go of all of the identities or, well, doesn't force it. Not everybody, you know, has that. But for a lot of people, even people who maybe weren't even on a spiritual path, um, there's like all the ways that we identify with like who we are, suddenly they don't mean that much anymore. What we have or our accumulations or our identities, our accomplishments. Um, and there's a chance to actually feel the deeper part of what we are that can happen at spiritual practice, but it's available really for anybody at any time, not just now, but this makes it a lot more, um, there's a way it can be more compelling so this is to me one of the opportunities is for people in their fear to let it kind of break them open I, and i've got another poem that i want to read but there's a way that um, it can allow us to um, go beyond how we normally experience ourselves and the truth is that the experience of what we are that's beyond this conditioned life experience is always available whether we are at the end of life whether we are sick whether we are healthy whether it was three months ago we were just living our lives normally it's always and six months from now when we're dealing with the aftermath of what's happening um, it's always available so this is to me the opportunity is for people to really feel in themselves to, to calm themselves, first of all, and to then be present and to turn and see if it's possible to feel that which we are all the time that is beyond the body and the personality and to have some trust in that. You know, that's one of the things that spiritual practice gives us is a trust. If we've had tastes of that, we can start knowing more and more that is really what we are and to even potentially live from that. But, you know, even if somebody hasn't had a lot of those experiences, this is a time that can crack us open to possibly experiencing that like you know, in some traditions, the end of life can do. And and I'm going to read a poem about this that um, to me really captures it. Again, this is a little bit more of a sword poem. I've got some that are a little bit more, um, you know, not quite as, you know, sort of truth. But this is, I call this indestructible. And it's by Carl Fried Durkheim, who's a German Zen teacher. Only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible arise within us. And so this is part of, you know, what happens in spiritual practice is we're kind of going for that. But life experience also can really um, open us to knowing ourselves as something greater. And whether we are going to be facing the end of life or 
being sick and afraid in an environment that we might not want to be in or whether we're going to survive and then have to adjust to whatever life is going to mean after this, which we don't know that either. So just surviving is no guarantee. You know, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty for everybody after this, you know, whatever over means. Um, there's a place in us. I mean, there's there's different ways of experiencing that, which is indestructible. Um, Some of the ways have to do more with the emptiness of how we've known ourselves and that stillness and that depth, that, you know, that mystery that um, is really beyond all description from which everything emanates. That to me is the deepest experience. Another way people can experience it is love. And through, um, that sense of unity with all that is and all that, you know, exists beyond this realm. But, you know, that I think is another opportunity as we turn inward to um, feel that sense of unity with all of humanity, that we are all going through this. We are all suffering together at the same time. And this is really, again, the first time that that's happened, that we've known it was happening. You know, it's happened before with global disasters, but this we actually know now. And I, I see things like the other day, um, there were news stories of Italians standing on their balconies singing together. And it just, I mean, it just, I just cried. You know, watching those videos of people who couldn't um, actually be together, but they were out there being together. You know, and there's, to me, there's something so um, so profound about what we are at the deeper level that a disaster like this can help us be in touch with, with our actual love for all of humanity, you know? And um, so these are the things that are there, whether we are going to live or not, to be in touch with, instead of fear, to be in touch with realizing maybe how much we do love the rest of humanity, you know, like in my neighborhood, people were out walking their dogs. You know, it wasn't the Italian singers, it was the dog walkers, you know, and um, and we want to be together. And that I think is one of the things we're gonna see over this time is how much, how much we value each other and that human interaction that I think we, you know, a lot of us, myself included, can take for granted how much um, beauty there is in being with other people. Maybe even people we don't like that much. That, you know, maybe it's time for us to start being able to transcend some of these divisions in a crisis like this sometimes allows for that. But to feel it in ourselves is the most important thing. You know, I'd much rather be sitting here feeling 
the kind of love that the Italians singing from their balconies, I mean, I'm making up that they were feeling it, you know, but there was just, there was something saying, um, we're together in that to me, even they weren't physically together, they were together here. And if I'm going to die, I'd much rather die feeling that, you know, my, my dad is 85 and he, um, lives in Chicago, so he's not anywhere near me. He's very far away. And he delivers meals to homebound seniors five days a week. He's 85, and he does this five days a week. He drives, and he's not going to stop. You know, he wants to go out doing something, helping people. I think that's how we should all want to go out and feel good about what we did, you know? So, I mean, to me, that's the kind of, um, that's the opportunity is to say, who am I? And how do I want to be in this situation? It's like, it's, it's a crucible for, all of us and for humanity as a whole to really say, who really are we? What are we made of? And I want to be made of something like what my dad is exhibiting, whether I'm doing, so, I'm, not, I'm not saying we should all go out and be exposed to the virus. That's not what I'm saying, but like to come from a place that is, um, is reaching out in the situation, whether that's internally from our hearts or whether that's doing something, um, that's the opportunity. So on that note, people will have loved ones, neighbors who are sick or become sick, um, perhaps who are facing difficulty, even perhaps even facing death. What would you say to someone who asked you, Tina, what can I do from perhaps a meditation point of view or a humanity point of view? to support the state of mind of someone who's going through that sort of suffering? Yeah, so this is really, what is it to be with others who may be facing that? And, and you know, as I just said, I, I'm facing that because I can't really do anything to help my dad. And he, he wants to do what he wants to do, and that's his choice, you know? And I respect that. I'm not going to try and um, convince him to do otherwise if that's what his choice is. So, um, and I may have to face his death because he's 85 and susceptible. So, you know, all of us may be worried about loved ones who we maybe they're far away, we can't do anything, or what if they already have um, the illness and they may end up not surviving. Um, this is another place to me to really feel feel the sense of non-attachment, not to the person, but to the outcome. And we want to be prudent. So I'm not, you know, again, I'm very practical and have, I wash my hands and I'm limiting social interaction and doing all those things. So I, I'm not suggesting that we don't take prudent action. I think that is essential, is if you are responsible for others, you know, a parent or um, have others in your household that you're self-quarantining with or, uh, you know, 
um, to really do what you can to protect others. And even just for all of us, not going out and spreading this is a way we are helping other people. We're helping people we don't even know by not going out and spreading it. So, um, you know, that's something we can all do. But if, if the loved one gets this, you know, this is where, to me, we may not even be able to see them. You know, this is part of at least what I've seen in, in the States. They're limiting hospital visits and visits to places where people are in institutional isolation. So um, I would really encourage everyone to, um, if there's something important you want to say to people that you care about, say it now. Because there's never a wrong time to say it, you know? If you say it now and nothing happens, excellent, you know? But um, to have the peace of knowing that you have, um, have a sense of rightness with those you care about is so, um, there's a peace in that. Like my mom passed a few years ago and when she passed, I really felt that there was nothing that I needed to say to her that I hadn't said. And that gave me a huge peace of mind to know that. And I believe she felt that way too. And I feel that way about my dad. And um, so that would be my first piece of advice is to express whatever is true if you you know, have unfinished, you know, maybe did something unskillful or had a, a, a dispute that is unresolved with a sibling or a friend or a relative. Um, now is a great time to resolve that. And again, if if it um, doesn't have to be a long drawn out thing, but to have that peace of mind and cleanness in our relationships really is uh, Always, it's always good, but now especially, it could be two weeks. I mean, people have had loved ones pass away within two weeks that two weeks ago were out going on picnics, you know? So that would be my first piece of advice. Um, and then the second is that we can help others even when we're not with them physically. So if you're physically... You know, I think in this case, pretty much anybody who has it's going to um, be quarantined. Now, if, if you have it and are quarantined, you know, I, the rules are always changing about should you quarantine in the same household with somebody who has it? I think the odds are higher that you're going to get it. I mean, so t again, take whatever practical steps feel appropriate for you and the right choice. Um, if you are with somebody and they are at a point where you feel they aren't going to survive, I think the um, being present with them for where they're at and being a stable um, support for them is the best thing we can do for a loved one. To not make it where they're having to take care of us you know, because a lot of times the dying person is seeing the distress in the others and ends up 
needing to actually take care of their loved ones while they're dying. So to me, that would be my advice would be if you are dealing with things, deal with it when you're not with that person. Deal with it outside the room with someone else or Skype a friend or something so that you can really be present for them while they are going through that. Um, and then the second case, which I think is probably a lot more likely if somebody is with somebody who is, um, is who has a loved one who's dying that they can't be with physically. I think that's going to be a lot more common with this scenario, at least, is that we can, um, there's a lot that we can do for somebody from a distance and um, even to do for ourselves with their passing. And in Buddhism, there are a few practices that relate to this. One is called the Brown Viharas, the divine abodes of the heart. And those are loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And I'll just briefly talk about these. Loving kindness is sort of the baseline, um, well-wishing for all beings, just as an everyday and ourselves, as an everyday sort of, you know, wishing the best for others. And then um, compassion is what can arise from the heart when another person's suffering. So it's a wish that they can bear their suffering or that their suffering will end. And, um, or for ourselves also. So with compassion, and that's really gonna be needed a lot in these situations for ourselves, if we are sick or if we are losing somebody or if our situation is very, very difficult, just to stop so that, you know, I talked about the breath and feeling I'm really afraid or I'm anxious or I'm overwhelmed or I'm, I'm disoriented, you know, to just know that's what's happening. That brings us into the present moment. And then the next thing in those cases, most of those would be to apply compassion for ourselves or for if we're with someone who's sick or is dying. And um, the, um, the phrases for this, we can make phrases, but I'll just give a few. Um, basically, the, the object of our awareness is the person suffering, whether that's ours or another. Compassion um, is a balm to the heart. And so there might be phrases. The phrases aren't the object. It's the person's suffering. So the phrases could be things like, um, may, your, may your suffering end soon, or may you be able to bear your suffering. Or may I, may I um, handle my suffering with self-compassion, even. And so to really feel this compassion for ourselves and others, that this is, I mean, this is the first noble truth in Buddhism: is that as long as we're having having a human experience, there's going to be things that are unsatisfactory, or even really tragic, and that um, there's a way out of that, which is what I talked about earlier with really knowing what we are that's beyond this. But as an interim step, really feeling that compassion 
and um, just coming back to that over and over. And then the, the joy, Brahvihar, I won't get into too much. Um, the last one is equanimity. And I think in this case, this is needed in like huge doses as well. And equanimity is what can arise from the purified heart when things don't make sense, when life doesn't make sense, when good people suffer, when people we think don't deserve it get good things and don't suffer, and others do. But you know, none of this makes sense to us. And this is where, from the perspective of the individual, we can't know the bigger picture of reality in a, as a totality. And like personally, I believe that there is an optimizing force that underlies everything, even if we can't see it, even if it's awful what's happened, that we can feel that though sometimes. And um, like I had a really horrific health situation about five years ago that involved like extreme levels of pain. It's the most painful chronic pain condition known to man. And um, there were days when I was told basically I would have this the rest of my life and live a long time and it'd be intolerable. And about 30% of the people kill themselves who have it. And there were, there were days I didn't know if I could actually tolerate the pain in another hour. That's how bad it was. And yet through that whole thing, I could feel, I never doubted that there was something optimizing about that experience. Even if I died, I knew that. I never lost touch with that. And so this to me is the opportunity to, with the equanimity practice, to, um, to give ourselves to not knowing why it's happening, not knowing why it's unfair that children, well, in this case, this doesn't really make children die, but the people die before their times or suffer in ways that are just, um, and that um, may I be able to bear this uncertainty with grace. May I May I tolerate this, um, this not knowing with a sense of peace? And so this is the opportunity. To me, the equanimity practice is the hardest one. But there is a place in us. Our, our minds can't know it. Logic this isn't about logic, it's about trust. It's about trust in something that is deeper and um, that can give us peace in the most intolerable situation. So those are the four Brahma Viharas and that's really what I would suggest in terms of people turning to those. And I do actually have a one page um, like cheat sheet on the Brahma Viharas that I can send you and you can, if there's a way to post that, um, and I will post it when I put this on my website, I'll post it there and, and it could be downloaded that has different phrases and a little bit more about the practice. 
people will be able to okay. see that if wherever you're watching, just scroll down, if whether it's on Tina's site or my site or wherever it is, and there'll be a link there. Yeah. And then there's one other practice I'll just touch on, although I don't really recommend this practice unless somebody's fairly advanced in their spiritual path. And that's Tomlin, which is a Tibetan Buddhist practice where we actually take in the suffering of another or the world as a way of uh, really like bearing the karma ourselves. And then we, we exhale and we exhale that we take in the suffering, we exhale the, it cleanly without the suffering. And, um, but that practice is really more advanced for people who can be in a state of, of emptiness or no self themselves while doing it. So, um, because otherwise it, it can be a lot for a person to really take in and purify the level of suffering that's happening. But I, I wanted to mention the Tonglen practice because it's an extremely, um, it's really where we're, we are taking on that suffering ourselves as a way to try to purify that for the benefit of an individual other person or of a, the collective or a group. Let's say someone is thinking of a loved one who's suffering or they're just thinking of all the people in general who they may not know who are suffering. What would be the technical procedure for Tonglen? Yeah, so in, in the Tonglen practice, um, well, I'll give you the whole series of steps that I would recommend would be the first step when you're sitting to meditate. And this is, I'm, this is more of a, you know, other people who aren't as deep in Tibetan Buddhism might skip some of these early steps. But the first step is to do what's called arousing bodhicitta. So this is the desire, the aspiration for awakening for the benefit not only of ourselves but for all beings and so i you know i i this actually relates to what i was saying earlier the potential i think for a lot of people to really break through to a deeper aspect of themselves i think this is a time when that is really possible and so if you can do bodhicitta as a practice or you could do it many times a day. When I did my year-long solo retreat and I started my day out, the first thing I did was I went and I, um, I had a whole series of phrases that I said, but the first thing I did was um, offer myself uh, as a vessel for, um, for true nature, for awakening, for the benefit of all beings to, to help the collective through my own practice. So that's the first thing. And you can really feel it in your heart. It's like, yes, I, I want to awaken, but I want to do this for the collective of all beings and the earth itself. Okay, so that's arousing bodhicitta. To be able to um, arouse the sense of your own aspiration for liberation um, for the benefit of all beings. And that gives a purity and you can kind of feel it in your heart too. So that's the first step. And then um, the next step would be to feel if you can be in touch with the place in you that is beyond 
and I'm making this a little generic so that, you know, there's not a lot of technical language, but that is beyond your personality and this body that is um, free in a way from the conditioning of this lifetime and to feel that place of um, that's that's pure that is that ground that we all come from that we all emanate from and I'll, I'll do my diagram like I did when we talked last time so this is what we normally see the fingers right that they're all separate and there's a reality to that that we are all a fingertip in this example but there's this and we can know ourselves here and yes there is this which is what we see in the physical plane but there's this so this is really what i'm pointing to 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 feel if we can the place that is here that's beyond the individual the hand survives even without the finger so when we aren't you know if somebody when we all pass that life is not anymore and yet there is still something which is beyond that so to feel that place and then to um to envision the person or the group or the situation that where the suffering is happening whether that's all beings whether that is a, a loved one or a friend who is suffering maybe who has you know this illness um, or all the beings who have it or the healthcare workers i mean gosh i would love it if we could do it for the healthcare workers who are trying to help the people who are sick um, or our leaders who we need to do the right thing you know so anyway you get the idea so we basically we take in and when the heart feels pure and clear then we breathe in the suffering and we breathe out the equanimity the the freedom from the suffering and so we're we're taking in and we're giving out we're giving out that which is pure and free and um, unhindered and so this is really the practice and we do it for you know as long as one wants to and this is a way in in tibetan buddhism it's believed that if this is done with the sincere motivation and the um and the purity of heart that it can actually help like physically others so um maybe we'll just go through a short version of this right now if people want to do this and then they can have this little snippet guiding them okay so feel yourself sitting in whatever posture is good for you whether that's in a chair or a zafu or bench and just feel yourself sitting here be as upright and yet relaxed and comfortable as possible and take in a few breaths in the belly 
your own presence be felt. And also relaxing your nervous system so that you can be as present as possible. And this can be done with eyes closed or open, whatever's more comfortable for you. And then feel your sincere wish for your own awakening, for the benefit of all beings. Arouse bodhicitta in your heart, that sincere wish to be free of conditioning that causes suffering and to use that freedom in the service of all beings. Feeling your heart area and the sincerity of this motivation to to be a free human. And then feeling that place in you, turning yourself to the place in you that is beyond the personality, beyond your conditioning, beyond the body, that ground of being that is indestructible. It's like a clear glass that things can come through without anything sticking or like a mirror that reflects without any distortion. or like a void that just absorbs all suffering, all conditioning, or the love, the love that unifies all of us, feeling this part of what you are at your depth. And then from this place, identifying who you want to do the bodhicitta for, whether it's a person or a group of people or all of being, and breathing in that suffering right into the middle of your heart, offering yourself as a vehicle for the purification and the easing of that suffering. Breathing out the purity, the peace, the love, the freedom that is free from the suffering. Breathing in, breathing out.
You can go on in this way as long as you want, offering yourself as a vehicle to ease the suffering of another, of humanity. So this is a way for all of us to be engaged and um, and contribute something if we feel called to do that. Thank you. You've given a lot of possibilities in this uh, discussion of practices that one can do even when one can't get to the sick person or the person who's suffering. And many people are limiting their social contact, and some are in isolation, either voluntarily in isolation or because they're required to be in isolation. Of course, you have quite a bit of experience with seclusion. What advice would you give to people who find themselves in a period of extended seclusion? Yeah, it was, it was um, funny because I was, you know, thinking about that today and, and how, um, you know, I sort of can't believe that I did that for a year almost. I mean, I saw people here and there, but it was a long time. So, and I'm an extrovert too, on top of it. I mean, not high on the extroversion scale, but um, so, um, you know, this is a time, it's almost like for those of us who aren't either sick or caring for the sick, there will be a lot of us who are you know, socially isolating intentionally or unintentionally because we're, we're sick but may not need hospitalization for long periods. And we don't really know how long this is going to go on. So um, it's almost, again, like the universe is saying, you know, take a pause here. Take a pause. And, and there's the opportunity, I mean, we can go into fear cycles that can spin out of control and it's easy for that to happen. So hopefully I've given a few you know, options to break that cycle and limiting, it's good to stay informed. So I think being informed is good, but to limit the contact that we have with what's the news and what's going on, um, I, like limit yourself to X number of times a day. Like I'm doing two times a day where in the morning and in the evening, not before bed, but like before dinner. So that there's some time that this isn't the last thing that consciousness hears before sleeping. Cause if we get sleep, we're going to be a lot more, our immune system's going to be stronger. So we want to be taking care of ourselves, but that's what I'm doing. So the first would be to, to be conscious in your media consumption. Um, to, I just saw an amazing interview with an epidemiologist and he was saying, you know, or exercise, eat well, you know, do what you can to be healthy and to not, um, let yourself get into a lot of cycles of anxiety and looping. Um, it's a great time to be, you know, if you want to have social contact, Skype and things like this are awesome. So keep up, you know, unless you're going to use this for a retreat time, which I'll talk about in a minute, it's a great way to feel like you're having contact with people, you know, so this is, a, you know, there are ways we can do it, 
that like I didn't do on my retreat, but um, that can keep us in touch with loved ones and, and others. Um, but for the actual time that we're gonna be just at home by ourselves or with a small group of people, I think it's an amazing time to actually use as a kind of retreat. And I just got a poem this morning. I'm going to read about this. And then I'll, I'll just to sort of give you a, like the feel for what I'm talking about. And then I can talk about some practical, like if you're going to do a solo retreat type thing, what might that look like? Okay, so this I was just written on the 11th by a woman named Lynn Urgar, Ugar, Urgar, U-R-G-A-R. And the title is Pandemic. What if you thought of it as the Jews consider the Sabbath, the most sacred of times, ceased from travel, ceased from buying and selling, give up just for now on trying to make the world different than it is. Sing, pray, touch only those to whom you commit your life, center down, and when your body has become still, reach out with your heart. Know that we are connected in ways that are terrifying and beautiful. You could hardly deny it now. Know that our lives are in one another's hands. Surely that has become clear. Do not read it, reach out your hands, reach out your heart. Reach out your words. Reach out all the tendrils of compassion that move invisibly where we cannot touch. Promise this world your love for better or worse in sickness and in health so long as we all shall live. So, you know, this is, we're probably going to be doing it anyway, so why not make use of this time to just stop? You know, just stop and feel the stillness of not having to do anything, really, other than just take care of ourselves, not being able to do anything, really. And um, if one is not going to do a retreat, you know, I, and even if you are, um, I think doing some things that are nourishing for the soul, like um, I bought some chocolate and so I'm sort of rationing out of like a little piece every day and really enjoying it fully and, you know, or that cup of tea or I'm, I'm doing a lot of exercising, you know, to, to have things built into that time that are um, healthful for your body and for your spirit, I think is really important. Um, it, and that could include reading or other things that like we've all wanted to catch up on, you know. If people are really going to do a retreat though, um, what I suggest, and I give people solo retreat guidance literally every week, 
I, you know, because I did it for so long, a lot of people come to me for solo retreat guidance. And I think it's possible to do that. And even if you feel like you need to keep up to look at the news for like some designated time or to text a few family or friends or email them and still do a solo retreat. So I don't think we have to go completely, you know, for people who want to, I think that's great. But if you want to do a solo retreat, I think you can do it and still maintain contact with others. So that, that would be the first thing to say. So the rest is what I'm just going to give solo retreat guidance I would give anybody at any time. And the first would be to at least start out with a schedule, a sitting schedule. And I, you know, again, I'd be happy to put a solo retreat schedule out, you know, and, and one of the things that I've um, have that's a recent development on my website. These are for sale, so I'm not trying to give a plug, but is what's called retreats in a box where people can actually do a retreat and it has talks. But, you know, people can create that themselves by um, giving some structure to the retreat. So I encourage you to have a schedule, like a retreat schedule, at least to start where you're sitting and maybe doing some walking meditations, sitting meditations, doing some walking meditations or other kinds of exercise, qigong, yoga. On my year-long retreat, because I did it for a year, I did walking, qigong, and yoga every single day. I mean, I was, my, I was in great shape, you know, and I ate healthy too. So um, that would be the first thing. You might do really simple meals so that there isn't a lot of time spent in food preparation because if you're really going deeper if you're really doing a deeper meditation practice you know it's um can take a lot of time to do extensive cooking so you know we're all at this point home with whatever food we have so that may not you know you may need to do cooking but it, it helps just to make meals simple my my suggestion would be to um do like a normal retreat schedule, just to give an idea, would be to get up whatever time you get up, maybe do a sitting when you get up first thing, then have breakfast, do whatever, you know, showering and things that are needed. And then basically the morning is a block of sitting, walking or exercise, sitting, walking, sitting. So that's the morning block. And at that point, you know, that's several hours. Your practice can really deepen a lot if you do blocks. If you read in the middle of that, you've just blown off, you know, that sort of block. So, and then there would be the lunch meal, and then there'd be the afternoon block, and then there'd be the dinner meal, and um, and then a sitting. And I do recommend if somebody's doing home retreat to have Dharma talks that you listen to at night because I mean, maybe for some people, morning is better. If you're a night person, maybe you alternate, you know, you switch this. But um, most people, by the evening, they're they're getting a little tired, and they're, it's not the best time to meditate necessarily. And people need the inspiration. When I'm, I did a month-long solo retreat a couple years ago, and I had Dharma talks. I planned ahead of time which talks I was going to listen to, and then I listened to talks that were a sequence that were something, you know, they weren't just like random talks. So I would really encourage for people to decide that like before 
And so then you're also not having to surf the internet trying to find talks. You know, you just, you have your talks, you listen to them. Um, and then maybe do another sitting, go to bed. The next day you're doing the same thing. And you could do this indefinitely. You know, depending what kind of practice you're doing, like in the Samatha practice and any kind of concentration practice or even in Vipassana. Um, I've done many, many month-long Vipassana retreats when I was, you know, attending them mainly at Spirit Rock. Um, the reading will take you into a more mental function. So if you're really trying to do the sama, any kind of concentration, the Samatha practice, I really suggest not reading or writing a lot because it just activates the mentalizing. And if you're gonna use five minutes a day or twice a day to look at the internet and see how your friends are doing, whatever, that's gonna be a lot right there of mentalizing, you know? So other practices like um, doing Dzogchen, if one is doing that, it's not as important to not read or other things. So, you know, it sort of depends what practice you're doing and how the reading and such fits in. But for the most part, I would suggest um, going light on any of that while, while doing the retreats. But the talks are really helpful because they give a sense of community and connection. And I mean, I've even thought about, well, should I offer an, an online retreat during this time? You know, and there may be other online retreats that people can do to feel connection with a, a community. But regardless, just having the Dharma talk, even if it's pre-recorded, there's a sense of other people, and I think it's really um, it can be uplifting to hear those. So that that's pretty much it. That's what a solo retreat looks like. And if you, the other thing that can be really helpful on solo retreats um, is to have guidance from someone or at least have someone you're touching in with, maybe a, a, a Dharma buddy. This would be a really cool option to pre-schedule, maybe a few check-ins to short with a Dharma buddy, um, because people can get, um, if they do solo retreat for a long time, people can get yogi mind and not know they're getting yogi mind. So this is where like, <laughs> and I, when I first started teaching, when Steve and I first started teaching, we wanted to do remote solo retreat guidance for people. And all of our teaching mentors said, don't do that. We don't recommend that and we don't do it. Like on my year, I couldn't get anybody to, I had one friend who was a mentor to me, but he was a friend more than anything who agreed to meet with me remotely while I was doing my year log. But the rest of them really, advised against it and then and Steve and I we did a few of these and then we found out why they said that because people can get really out there you know and not know they're out there yeah so this is where if you're going to do it for more than like a week or two weeks I really suggest checking in with a teacher you know because you want to um, just have a touch point of uh where you're at and you do offer that still don't you i do i do it for a lot of people a lot yeah and and even just even doing it at the beginning or end if it's two weeks like when i do a two-week solo retreat it's good to have a few in the middle but if somebody's doing like a five day or a seven day or you know seven might be good to have one in the middle anyway 
it, the longer it gets, the more you need in the middle. Um, but to do shorter ones, just one at the beginning and the end is good. And um, I mean, it's a great way to really go deep in your practice and um, learn. The other thing is, like, this is one of the things for the people like who've never done a solo retreat. What I'm finding is that their first solo retreat, it might be a little, for some it's not that hard, for some it's a little hard, depending on how many other retreats they've done, but they get better at it. Like just finishing, like I had one person who wanted to do, I think he was doing like four days or she was gonna try and do five. Well, he didn't quite make it to the end, but wow, he almost made it to the end, you know? And he felt a lot more capacity in his own practice and his ability to do it and stay with it. And, you know, it was awesome. It was a big jump forward. So, I mean, this to me is something, you're not just practicing, you're also learning how to be autonomous in your own spiritual practice. And I think that's really um, a great way to spend this time. Plus. When we're meditating, we're contributing something peaceful and equanimous. I mean, not that we're peaceful, you know, solar retreats are hard and you're gonna be thinking and getting into your hindrances and defilements a lot. So that's just part of what happens. But we're, the times that's not happening, we're contributing to the collective consciousness in a way that's, um, I believe is actually benefiting the collective consciousness because we're purifying our own mind streams, you know? And that is something that, I mean, nobody's gonna, we're not like attending a rally or carrying signs or banners or anything, but I think that that is actually contributing to the, it's offsetting some of the fear and panic that's in the collective consciousness. So it's a great way to give something back in a, you know, in a way that's different than the Tonglen, but it can definitely um, help. That's tremendous. That's yeah. uh yeah. show the retreat guide right there. <laughs> yeah, that's the short version. That's pretty much it. I mean, really working with hindrances and, and with working with our patterning, that is the place where, you know, it can get hard. Um, and if it's too much, then you just take a break. If you need to stop meditating for a few hours and go do something, then do that, you know? Um, but it is, it's a great time to go deeper. And since so many of us will have this time, why not make the best use of it in that way? And, you know, do whatever practices. You can do the Brahma Viharas. I've had people, people on my, the month long, did the Brahma Viharas the whole time. So, that is another practice you could do. If you're doing a five-day retreat, you could do one on each Brahma Vihara. Or, you know, there's a lot of different meditations one can do. And like on my year, I did a lot of different practices. And that was part of, like each practice is doing something different to our consciousness. So if this goes on a while, that would be another option would be to do solo retreat and do, you don't have to do the same thing the whole time. You could like take a week or five days and do different practices and reap the benefits of those different practices on your consciousness. So you could string a yeah. series of short solo retreats that are focused on in certain areas. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I hadn't even thought of that, but um, 
you know, since this could go on a while. And and that would be another way, it's like a mini version of what I did. I would go like a month where I was pretty much silent and not in contact. And then I'd have a few days where I got groceries and paid bills and saw my friends and called my parents. You know, if you know you're going to be isolated for a few weeks or a month, whatever, you know, we don't know how long this is going to go on, to do a few days and then to sort of come up and then to do a few days, you know. I mean, maybe, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> That's so much detail. Thank you, Tina. Do you have any closing comments before we wrap it up, this special edition of the podcast? I would encourage people to, to feel the profundity of what's happening. To feel really how profound what's happening is that this we are all here right now at this moment in human history that has never happened in this way before and that we know it and to really um, make the most of it in terms of your own inner unfoldment, in terms of your love and care for the rest of humanity in whatever form that takes. Doesn't have to be action, but to feel that and um, to really take in the non-attachment that the reality is that we've we've never had control it's the ego self that thinks that but really from from the awakened perspective everything is just arising on its own and um to really be able to feel the truth of that in a deeper way and to um to bow to it and to use this as, as a crucible for, um, for all of us, really, for our own deepening into what it means to be human and to how we want to show up in that and, um, and to really come back to that compassion and the equanimity as um, places that can be a balm for us and for others and um, and are wonderful things to be cultivating not only do they help the situation but they're they're um, expressions of the unhindered heart and so this is a chance for all of us to really um, deeply cultivate those. Tina Rasmussen, thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Guru Viking podcast. For more information and more episodes in this series, visit www.guruviking.com.